You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, we go inside the huddle with John Brancy. The Counter Baritone joins us from <laughs> London, where he's reprising his role as the artisan and collector in George Benjamin's Picture a Day Like This. He tells us how that role was customized to his freakish abilities <laughs> and why we shouldn't limit ourselves to just one way of singing. And then Lisette Oropesa, who makes her lyric opera debut next month in Daughter of the Regiment, takes a free throw on the other Donizetti role that brought her career to international attention. Plus, in the two-minute drill, what year is it? According to a North Carolina classical radio station, it's 1950. (laughs) Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. You click follow on Apple Podcasts. You hit that plus sign. You can always send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, mailbag at operaboxcore.com, or you can even just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say page on our website, operaboxcore.com. Hey, however you contribute, you're going to get an OBS beer coaster, an OBS lapel pin, and the all-new number one OBS fan foam finger, just for sharing your own hot take. Yikes. Oliver Camacho, <laughs> good. I just—it's just so much merch. I'm just like overwhelmed by the merch. so much Oliver, merch. It's scary. Welcome to October, everyone. I do. Oh boy, already Oliver's not overwhelmed by the merch. I'm actually really excited about today's show because we can sort of rely on some great interview content, and uh, that's always a, an easier lift for us trying to produce a show every week. Uh, and you know, Lizette Oropesa was a huge get for us, so we're thrilled mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And uh, John Brancy is coming back to talk about this role that he created that is uh, capitalizing on something that only he can do, apparently. So we have lots of content for you that uh, people to meet, with people to hear. And uh, thanks to our new website, you can actually watch a video that uh, I referred to in the little free throw with Lizette Oropesa right uh, at opperboxscore.com. Technical competency on this podcast? I no, know. never you, heard Weston. of such a thing. <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, I'm doing my best over here, George. So, Oliver, I'm just, just kind of looking at our notes for the show. Uh, here's the note for Sports Talk. Travis, Kels, and Taylor Swift gay TikTok. I understand about half of those words. <laughs> So I don't know. This is hilarious. Um, you, you may or may not have heard that Travis Kelsey is that his name? Travis the for the Chiefs is that his? I would the, have said Kels, uh, but Kelsey. I'm not a big Chiefs. Fan, I think it's Kelsey. So. Yeah, uh, may or may not be dating Taylor Swift. Uh, she showed up in his players' box uh, twice now, and has uh, like been seen with with Travis Kelsey's mother. Uh, so um, gay TikTok is all like excited about this you know, relationship because Travis Kelsey is collab (laughs) collab. Yeah. Uh, Because Kelsey is a very handsome guy. He's super charismatic too. And he, uh, he's great with media. Um, And all the gays are coming out to give uh, each other pointers on what football is. So there's, it's like, I've been seeing all these videos come through about like, what does a quarterback do? What does a running back do? And it's like, you know, learn about football so that you can, you know, be aligned with, with Taylor Swift. 
Do we have any single berry hunks waiting in the wings to uh, to get that that Taylor Swift bump into in our opera houses? <laughs> That's exactly what we need. We need Taylor Swift to be interested in an opera singer so that people can take interest <laughs> in opera. It's a brilliant <laughs> idea. Fabulous. Let us talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. We talked to baritone John Brancy with his collaborator, pianist Peter Dugan, back in 2018 when they were... Oh my gosh, has it already been? Oh, whoa. When they were touring their program, A Silent Night, A Memorial, and Song. Uh, They are still regular collaborators and they are still uh, like peas and carrots, uh, really good friends. Uh, But now uh, John has this really incredible role that was created for him by composer George Benjamin. The opera is called Picture a Day Like This. It's uh, so good. It premiered at Aix-en-Provence in July. Uh, John had a chance to go home for a couple of weeks, and then he went back over to Europe, and he's now reprising the role at the Royal Opera House through October 10th. So if you're listening to this and you are uh, near London, you should go check it out. Um, we'll talk about exactly what john does in this show that makes it so unique but we can hear just a couple of seconds of it right now so the role of the artisan it goes all the way from a low b flat in the baritone range to a high soprano e natural here's a clip from a recent performance at the aix-en-provence festival which shows you the entire range Just a little bit of John Brancy singing the role of the artisan collector from George Benjamin's Picture a Day Like This. John, welcome back to Opera Box Score. Thank you. It's great to be back. Always. So, so you are right now at the Royal Opera House um, doing the second production of this George Benjamin opera. It was just broadcast on the WFMT radio network. I finally got a chance to hear it. Uh, it is so strange. <laughs> what, what is I mean, it's not difficult to listen to strange, but mm. um, it feels like nobody else will ever be able to sing this role beside you. Mm. Is, that, is that by design? <laughs> uh, well, George wrote it for me. You know, I was sitting with him. Um, we were working on it over a year ago. And um, essentially, you know, we we started experimenting with my voice and what I what I could do on the baritone repertoire that we explored and worked on, which was like Ravel's Don Quixote and Mahler's uh, Lieder eines Fadenden Gesellen and um, even like Dichterliebe and stuff like that. But then um, we'd given like a little family recital for his friends and family that came over that night for dinner. And we never got to touch on this part of my voice. So I like made it a point to be like, George, I think I should come back the next day and we should, you know, you should interrogate me about my voice. And so I did. And when I was warming up, I was warming up into my countertenor, which goes up to past uh, soprano E natural into like a, a natural is about the, the, the highest, you know, sweet note that I have um, mm-hmm. until it goes up into like B, B flat, B, C, which I can hit, but those are kind of like strident and, and very thin. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And he just we like, like came. He was, we like to use he, the word gossamer around here. We don't call people's voices thin. <laughs> a gossamer, gossamer. I feel like I feel like the I feel like the Brits would be into that word for for this. I would I would definitely see that in a in a in a critical review somewhere. But yeah, so he was like he was upstairs, and and when he heard me doing that, he came rushing down and sort of just like jumped into the room. And at that point, we had he the the interrogation really began, and he started dissecting every part of my voice, including like what vowels sounded best on different notes and and like specifically the part of my voice that doesn't, it acts like a passage, a passaggio between the two registers and that's B flat. So, um, the tenor B flat, uh, no, the, uh, baritone B flat under middle C. Okay. Yeah. So, have you ever flirted with the idea that you might be a countertenor? Because like a, yeah. a, a high F is like really as much as you need for a lot. I know. Of, you know, I know, I know. Well, I mean, now I kind of officially have sung countertenor professionally. Like it's that's what's wild about this gig is like You're called counter baritone, though. <laughs> I'm a counter baritone. It's true. I, and like that's the whole thing is. So I'm going to tell you a story. And I guess this is like the first time I'm going to publicly tell this story. Uh-oh. Um, but I when mean, I was people have people have come out on the show before, so exactly. <laughs> well, I'm coming out as a counter baritone, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but originally, like when I first started uh, applying for schools and you know doing the whole high school into college situation for singing, I had no concept of you know what. Fach was. I just understood that I was singing and I was enjoying it and it was fun. And I really enjoyed singing both baritone repertoire and some countertenor repertoire. Um, and I think at the time I had sung the Chichester Psalms, Bar- uh, Bernstein's Chichester Psalms, the countertenor part, in a high school production of it with con- with with orchestra. And I had also sung, um, I think, like a John Rutter Requiem solo that was meant for like a boy soprano that I ended up singing in addition to the baritone solo. So I did both of those things in advance of me like auditioning for schools. Um, so with that in mind, I, I just like added it to my application for all of the schools that I auditioned for. And the only one that asked me to do it was Curtis. So they asked for it in the preliminaries and I got called back and they asked for it then too. And it was Caron, Caron, Caromio Ben. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was about to say Caronome. That's not yeah, what it was. That, that would have been pretty impressive if you could sing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, then it would have been like no doubt. But so it was Caromio Ben and it was fun. And when I did the callback for Curtis, you know, I don't know if you know anything about those callbacks, but basically it's the person who's making the decisions and at the time and all of the graduate students and I think basically all the students that are actually in the school are sitting in this room with no light and you're just like blasted with light on stage and you're being, again, to use the word, interrogated. And so I sang Karomio Ben and he was basically like, we'll take you as a countertenor. And this is Curtis. This is like my my home city where I grew up, Philadelphia, where both my parents are from. I mean, that's an amazing thing. It's also free. 
And I was like, well, I, I, I love singing baritone. Can I, can I do both? And he was like, do you know anyone who does both? And it was kind of like, it was left there. I never heard from them as to whether I got in or not. And, um, wow. Because you wouldn't commit to being a countertenor. Yeah. Then in there, in that moment. And, um, are we shaming I, Curtis right now? I just interviewed Amanda Majeski like a minute ago. <laughs> I am actually. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of, I, I'm, I will say that it like for a, a young person who specifically, I didn't have parents who were musicians. I was with my choral director. He was playing piano for me for my audition. He was like appalled by that, that, that would even be like a consideration. And just for the, like, it to be such a immediately intense and toxic scenario where that like because you can't make a like a literal hairline decision how old were you uh, roughly around this time i was 18. okay yeah 18 yeah. year olds don't know what their fog is i'm sorry <laughs> no no and it's just like also yeah i put it on my application but you you could have given me you know that option it could have been like well yeah the, let's let's give him that option but it was it was there was no consideration so i'm just proud of myself at this point that i've it it literally took me 15 years 16 years to get to this point where that i'm actually performing it professionally and i helped create a new role with one of i think maybe the greatest opera writer for the operatic voice that we have one of maybe the best <laughs> living composers. Yes. Yes. Living. Yeah. Living. Yeah. Okay. Cause like, I think Verdi might have something to say about that. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it, it really is incredible. And um, I think, you know, as this opera makes the rounds and people hear what you're able to do in it, um, people are going to start talking. I feel like we are in this, new era where gender and um voice type is becoming blurry you know and you see which is an amazing era because it's like it is an area of the art form that has not been fully explored mm -hmm. and we have all of these other things that have been fully explored and they're so categorized and so dictated and so clearly delineated the lines you know mm -hmm. but this is an area where it becomes ambiguous and that's interesting yeah that's that could spur and birth new things well, we, have, we have singers like michael spires who you know is now able to sing you know both as a baritone and a tenor but also mm -hmm. is finding in baroque repertoire roles that capitalize on you know both registers and we have these countertenors now who are uh, no longer uh, feeling prohibited to go into their chest voices. Like, I think, you know, the early days of countertenor singing, it's like, how dare you use your, your your modal tone? Like, that's, you broke the rules. Like, why do we care? <laughs> that's exciting. Why do, do we it? care? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's like, it's, well, I think a lot of that generation that was sort of so rigid mm -hmm. and so... um in their in their own ways, you know, not to not to not to criticize them that much, but but in their own ways, kind of caught and captured within the confines. That's a lot of c words 
<laughs> of <laughs> and they're and they're conservative too. So yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, in the in the confines of their conservatism, you know, they're literally like held inside of this box, and you know, for the longest time, that was probably really important and useful to ensure that the art form would remain intact. But now with the with the internet, honestly, like and our ability to like Google any singer from the past in like major singers from like well into or way, 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 way back be, before like 100 years ago. Yeah, like seriously, before 100 years ago, like at the turn of the century, we can literally get the earliest recordings at our fingertips. Mm -hmm. So we don't need people to be as conservative and dramatic about the box, the specific, you know, parameters. But also it's creating a freedom for composers mm -hmm. to know that there are singers mm -hmm. like you out there who have this ability to do you know, these extended techniques and still keep beauty in their tone. And it makes me wonder, uh, have you gotten on Barbara Hannigan's radar yet? Because it seems like you'd be a perfect match for I, some of the things I, that she likes to do. So I finally saw her perform and it was with, it was at the Barbican. It was Barb, Barbie at the Barbican, basically. That's what, it, that's what it, it was like. I hadn't seen the movie Barbie yet. And I was like, oh, is this, I guess this is good. This is good. This is Barbie. <laughs> this is the classical music version of Barbie. Um, it was really amazing, actually. And it was a really beautiful, intriguing, powerful, dark program. Um, Fleur Baron, shout out to Fleur Mezzo-Soprano, um, was singing Wo bist du Licht by Claude Vivier, who is a um, 20th century a Canadian composer that I'd never actually really heard any of his music, let alone live. And it was a really intense piece. Um, but we met afterwards and she was lovely. And we, we, we hit it off and we started talking about, you know, what could be possible. She's extremely busy as you probably understand. Um, but I think, you know, at some point in the future, I, yeah, that would be a, a lovely collaboration and i think a place where i would feel so comfortable going even further with with this type of um this type of exploration yeah i, I feel like um y'all along you have been this artist who is trying to create this unique path for yourself even though your vocal gifts would say hey you know i can sing figaro right like right now yeah you know yeah uh, but you're doing all these other things. And we first met uh, when you were touring A Silent Night with uh, Peter Dugan, your memorial and song, the first mm -hmm. the first version of that. Mm -hmm. um, so it does make me think about your diversified career as a recitalist, as somebody who curates really interesting programs, concert singing, you know, you sing with the orchestras, you're like the go-to guy for whatever Mahler or uh, Messiah. <laughs> and, well, that uh, would be kind of an interesting, sorry to interrupt you, but that is kind of what I'm thinking now for my own programming is like recital work that could incorporate this into it. Um, you know, talking to composers about extrapolating cadenzas in early music, you know, stuff like that and writing me, counter baritone-esque 
um, cadenzas, for instance, and then also programming Mahler and programming a, maybe a, a world premiere piece that would also add that extension in into the same orchestral, you know, evening. Um, and yeah, I, I, if I were offered a Figaro, I would do it in a heartbeat. I love him. I love Figaro, <laughs> but also at the same time, there are tons of, you know, in, in some ways, lyric baritones are the most common singer next to lyric sopranos. We may be, you know, sort of neck and neck on this category. So it is not only is it fun for me and artistic artistically it gives me a lot of value and brings a lot of um excitement into my 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 artistic life but it also is kind of essential right now in terms of diversifying what you do you know because it's tough out there you know stuff out there it's like work is work is not like it's not you know everybody's calendars aren't completely packed full I'll I'll point to an interview we did with Justin Davies, who says it's important for a voice like his to actually have different types of things on the calendar every year. Mm. Uh, he loves the Bach. He loves the uh, you know the oratorios that he gets to do. But he knows that if he does only that stuff, people will forget that he sings opera. But he also knows that if you sing opera a lot, you know you're in. You know, you're like in a cave for like six weeks uh, with rehearsals and productions. And then people forget that you also love to sing recitals and that you're ready to do a B minor mass, you know, at a drop of a hat, you know. So you have to keep your uh, your career. You have to keep all those paths sort of going uh, so that you don't so you can actually fill up your calendar with things that are good for the pacing of the year. You know, like I think that the singer season, like like you, you've been gone since basically since May, you know, singing mm-hmm. this this role, and uh, it must be hard to be away from home, to be away from your loved ones and your cat. I don't know what you've got kind of <laughs> got going at home, you know. Um, and yeah, so get, in, get into routine of like going to the gym and like eating, feed, feeding yourself well, you know, like have to set yourself up in an apartment every couple of weeks and like try to figure out where to buy, you know, kale, you know. <laughs> Except I don't eat kale anymore. <laughs> oh, God. I don't love kale. I love I'll eat like baby greens. Those are I'll have like baby kale, but not not reg, not full grown mature kale. Mm. <laughs> yeah, like but um, okay. <laughs> but I yeah it's well this is always like the kind of the this is the topic for all singers you know because even if you are doing concert and recital work you're still traveling a lot, but that that point of like doing opera it's like this is this is the double-edged sword in this industry really actually is you want to do a lot of opera because the opera world likes for you to do a lot of opera and they like seeing you you know in productions on stage getting criticism in that arena but that work isn't constant for everybody and there is such a huge pool of concert work that's out there that's happening. And it's also booking a little bit um, later um, and closer to the date than opera is. Opera is like sometimes years in advance, which is amazing. But it's also like you have to wait 
so long, you know, to, to get that work and get that money. Um, so, but yeah, it's the, it's the double-edged sword because you, you also, you want to be available for anything and everything, but at the same time, you need to like, you need to really also make things happen for yourself. That's the, that is like the lesson that I'm really learning at this point in my career and my life is like the more that you can do in terms of just getting, sitting down and carving out time to whether it's creating programs and naming them and putting together playlists for them, or it's communicating with friends that are, you know, either running series or are they themselves touring and doing concerts, or it's following up with people that you have performed for maybe three or three to five years in the past, updating them, letting them know where you're at, what you've been doing. Like these are all things that I don't think singers nowadays can actually rely on managers for because managers are really looking for what's coming in the future. They're really focused on auditions. They're really focused on the people that are in the positions that they're in today, not previously as well. So they're, they're all about like what's happening in the moment and what's happening in the next nine to 16, nine to 18 months, really. It's like, that's their time frame. Um, So it's really, really imperative that young singers in particular get a sense of like what it, how it is to communicate on their own behalf. Well, no dig on managers, but um, you also are are doing uh, repertoire that a lot of managers would be like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, I, I not, I want to clear that up though, because like I fully intend to continue singing lyric baritone repertoire. Like that's, that is what I, I, I really like if Figaro is presented to me, maybe not the Mozart Figaro, but definitely the bar, bar you know, Barbiere. That's something that I'm, dying to do like i really really want to sing rossini more and um yeah i'm not saying no to any of that work <laughs> yeah. and it's not like you're having you're gonna have trouble with the g's <laughs> no 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 um so just to add one more uh level of complication to what you do already uh you, <laughs> now, you now sing for the rangers yeah i don't know if that's complicated i think that that's more of like you know, the the thing that I find so thrilling about that opportunity is it is an audience that's entirely and completely outside of classical music that knows me by name and loves when I sing the national anthem operatically because I don't do it. Um, I have no essence of pop singing whatsoever in my my version of it. And it's really actually from my experience with the Silent Night Memorial programs and going around to military academies and actually having sung the anthem for the military multiple times. And their response was kind of inspiring my version of it. And it's fully acapella, but I imagine what it would sound like with an orchestra behind me because it has this kind of, you know, specific tempo that I take in the beginning, middle and end. Yeah. But 
I mean, right now it's a very good, uh, it's a very good relationship. And I, I'm excited to see what it evolves into over the next several years. And hopefully the team, um, hopefully the team makes it to the Stanley cup at some point, (laughs) that would be, uh, that's up to them though. And lastly, uh, you did reveal to me that uh, you're from Philadelphia and maybe yes. you have some Philadelphia allegiances, even though you're singing from yeah. New York. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I'm I'm uh, like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of right now. <laughs> it's like Dr. Jekyll in, in New York and then Mr. Hyde and my Philadelphia Eagles kind of <laughs> these are my two teams. So he's singing at Madison Square Garden, baby. That is a rowdy crowd. <laughs> oh. you, can, you can't tell if they're like enjoying it or if they're like excited about it or if they want him to stop. But um, that, yeah, that takes some concentration to uh, finish the national anthem while all that <laughs> ruckus is going on. <laughs> Get to the fighting. Classic man. Philly. Classic New York, you mean, Weston? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah oh yeah. no, I'm not, all, all the Philly fans are going to come out and kill me after I said <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, huh? yeah, exactly. The Frank Luzies of the world. <laughs> it's all New England, am I right? So right now we are in the final week of the 2023 China Open in Beijing, and uh, it looks like we're going to get a Carlos Alcaraz and uh, Daniel Medvedev final which uh, that's my my pick for the, the two men to make it to the end, which will be a rematch of the semifinal where Carlos Alcaraz lost, uh, making way for Novak Djokovic to claim his 24th Grand Slam. I hope, I pray to God, that Carlos Alcaraz can uh, keep his form and annihilate Daniel Medvedev. Medvedev is a great player. I don't dislike him. Actually, he's really funny. But he is a dream crusher, and he deserves to be crushed. Is is it on... <laughs> do you know if it's on hard court or what surface Beijing is on? Yeah, they, they play on hard court. My, my point is, I'm part of... Like, I did like some uh, pub trivia the other night, yeah. and I thought that grass was the slowest surface, but it's clay, apparently. Yeah, clay is slower. Yeah, yeah I didn't know that. I learned something. Yeah, um, grass... Uh, is actually a, a pretty fast surface, to be honest with you. Not as fast as hardcore, though. 
No, no. but I think like the grass, uh, it it doesn't bounce as high <laughs> mm-hmm. as uh, as hard courts. This so has the points- been the tennis hour with Oliver Camacho <laughs> and George Cedarquist. We're literally t- hearing about grass growing. Let's move on. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast again on Spotify. You click follow on Apple Podcasts. You hit the plus sign. Our second interview today is none other than the great Lisette Oropesa. If you've been listening to Opera Box Score for a couple of years, you'll remember that uh, Matt Cummings and I did a TKO on the mad scene from Lucia. And, you know, one of the rules was we can't pick Lisette Oropesa. <laughs> and it was because around the time that we recorded that, everybody was talking about this performance from 2018 from Madrid. years ago uh, we did a TKO which is when we uh, pit singers against each other uh, in the mad scene of Lucia and the rules Uh were uh, you cannot pick um, Maria Callas you cannot pick Joan Sutherland and you cannot pick Lizette Oropesa So we ended up with. Oh my God, I'm dead. We ended up with Edita Gruberova young Gruberova and Anna Moffo uh, and um, Anna Moffo won. The judge was uh, conductor uh, Anthony Barese. He's Italian. So uh, Anna Moffo won because her Italian is better, I guess, you know. But for me, I mean, I love Anna Moffo, don't get me wrong. But for me, like. I love Anna Moffo. Yeah, just the technique. Uh, just, I think that people don't think that Gruberova's voice was beautiful. And I get that it was very silvery and very narrow sounding, you know. But to me, like what she was able to do, the phrasing, the, you know, just like breath control, oh, and the, you know. Yeah. Are you kidding? Gruberova had the control of, a, of an absolute genius, like the control of an absolute 
gifted, like, you know, I, 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 I know it's hard. <laughs> I, I, I get it. I get it. That raw beauty that Anna Mofo's voice had aesthetically. Mm-hmm. I, I get I get it. But I don't think Gruberova's voice was not beautiful. I love Gruberova's color. I love that silver metal color. I think that's stunning. Stunning. It's, there's a power in there, a core power in there all the time that's like very, very hot. It's like yeah. a hot fire. I yeah. love it. Yeah. It's like a laser a sometimes. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love that. I think that's phenomenal. So we when you were, think about how long she sang as well. Sorry. Uh, no, 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 yes. no. I, we yeah. were just talking uh, on my paying job uh, about your <laughs> Lucia uh, debut at uh, Teatro Real. Um, I did want to ask you if you can say it in a way that's maybe uh, just very real. Like, what did that mean to you to like get cast in that production and for that production to explode and for everybody to like pay attention to what you were doing over there in Spain, you know, covered in blood. (laughs) Covered in blood. Well, you know, uh, I owe a lot of the success in that production to two things. Number one, the cast was really amazing. I mean, it was Camarena and Ruchinsky. So I couldn't have asked for a more exciting people and and Raimondo was uh, Roberto Tagliavini. I, I mean, these are people that are brilliant bel canto singers that are phenomenally gifted. And so they brought a lot of um, star power to the entire thing. It wasn't just me. I was actually felt like very much like the debutante, even though I had sung Lucia before. Uh, and actually, uh, Camarena was making his debut as Edgardo, which was exciting. Uh, but I owe a lot of the success to the production to that. And I owe a lot of the success also of the production to the audience because in Madrid, Oliver, the audience is so passionate about opera and so vocal in their support for any things that they like, things that they don't like, whatever it is, they will, they, they don't just politely clap they They go crazy. And I think because of their passion and their appreciation for what we were doing, it made all of us bring our level up higher. Uh, because we were also pleased that they were with us and they were happy with what they were watching and they were supporting us. And I think anytime it's a, like a singer gets in front of an audience like that, yes, the audience, the audience absolutely can help a, a, an athlete feel like um, supported. Just feel like there's something there's 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 love there that, that they're with you on every phrase. Through. Yeah. Oh yeah, that they love you and that they're gonna they're cheering, literally cheering yeah. you on. I mean, it's a real thing. It is a real thing. I can't tell you how many times when I've run races, the the audience that the people, the spectators that are there cheering you on, going, Good job, you're almost there, <laughs> or good job, you've got a long way to go, but good job, you know, you've come this far. You know, those people make such they give you a boost. You know, they give you a boost. It's not, you're not performing in a vacuum. I mean, you're not performing in a, in a, you know, in a room with no one in it. You're performing in a room full of people. Like a know? COVID least... concert on video. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. Well, that was one of the hardest things during the pandemic is when we did, if we got to sing at all, you sang in a room with no one in it. And yeah. a lot of us realized, wow, what a difference this makes with no mm. public. Like, it's just so hard to, uh. to put it forward because the opera, opera is meant to be, it's a back and forth. 
Very much. You poured your heart out in that Royal Opera House, whatever that was, where you sang Amina. And like you just sang for like 16 minutes straight. And then <laughs> you hear no applause at the end. <laughs> There's nothing there. I know. And we were all, we were struggling because it was so distanced. I mean, mm. the entire um, uh, orchestra was spread out over across the 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 hall we, mm. they had removed the seats mm. and the orchestra was spread out out into the platea into mm. the, the actual seats you know and then the conductor was all the way in the back of the theater so i i felt like i was singing in a um an amphitheater with nobody in it it was <laughs> it was quite odd quite odd but just yeah. to, to close the loop on the madrid lucia and i think it makes sense because I think if you say the audience is really that knowledgeable, that's what I, when I go to hear Lucia, when I go to hear like a bel canto, you know, a big cabaletta, uh, big aria, I know all the phrases. I know exactly, you know, what the historical ornaments have been, what the historical cadenzas have been. And when somebody surprises mm. me, great. When somebody I could tell is running out of air, okay, I'm with you, you know. But just to think that with a scene that's so well known, and has been yeah. interpreted by the greats, you know, to have the audience mm -hmm. just there with you, supporting you and wanting you to sing each phrase. And I want people to watch this video because I think you feel the energy even in the video from the audience of them just being so yes. excited about what you're doing. Yeah. And when you get up on the chair and you finish your last note and you just hold and you you take it all in, like I, I get emotional when I watch that. It's like Aww. you really accomplished something and the audience Thank was there you. to witness it. And everybody said this was a special night. We got to hear this thing today, you know, together. Oh. You know, <laughs> you must have felt that yeah. way when when you're on that it chair with incredible. your hair in your eyes and like sticky. It was incredible. <laughs> I was, and even the the day that the performance that we sang the the sextet, and they asked us for a beast for a, a, an encore of the sextet, and we're all laying there, you know, and we we knew that there was always a possibility uh, that a, a that an encore could be demanded from the audience but none of us planned you know or anything we weren't like okay we're gonna do an encore tonight no it was just like if the audience asks for one we'll see what happens but then you know several performances went by and nothing you know the audience would applaud but not to that level well then we get to the one night where they just wouldn't stop applauding and i'm laying on this table at the end of the sextet <laughs> on my back looking up at the ceiling and going i think I need to get down off this table and we need to do this sextet again because the conductor was not moving on to the yeah. next part of the music. And it was like, everybody kind of knew that was where we were headed with that. And that's the first time that's ever happened to me. And it was an incredible feeling. Uh, and again, like I said, that's when you feel like the audience is really on that journey with you. You sing for them. Did At you the guys, end of the day, you sing for them. Did you guys period. just do it standing shoulder to shoulder or did you go through the blocking again? Uh, I Well, I came up off the table. <laughs> <laughs> I was not singing upside down, I, but I came back onto the floor and I sat on the floor and kind of looked at the conductor and to see what we should do. And I could see everybody I looked at my colleagues, you know, and we were all like, OK, I guess. I mean, we're in character for as long as we could be. Yeah. But it was clear that we weren't going to move on. <laughs> it, it was pretty awesome. I mean, I don't know. It, those moments feel like they last an eternity. They really, because they, they something like that makes such an impression on you because it just doesn't happen all the time. I mean, I'm not used to that, you know, and, and it was really... And I'm there and I'm the Lucia, you know, and I'm like, gee, what do, am I supposed to take charge? Am I supposed to be the one to decide <laughs> if we're doing this again? Is it up to me? What does the tenor think? What does the baritone think? You know, and I'm looking around like, are we, and we were also being videotaped. I think that was one of the day that uh, we had been 
we were getting a broadcast, if I'm not mistaken, because I feel like the pic- the video of the sextet is online. So yeah, it was a bit, and it's an ensemble. It's not like it's an aria. So like I said, you don't you don't really feel like you're to- you're like in charge, but not really. You have to kind of. But we couldn't like stop and talk and huddle, <laughs> you know, take a time out and everybody huddle and talk. Start with, from measure six. Talk, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, and it's a big thing for everybody. The sextet. It's not an easy little number. The sextet. But yeah, I mean, it was amazing. What can I say? It, I, it was incredible. I, I'm so happy that I got to experience that. us your hot takes mailbag at operaboxscore.com or get this you can even just record your thoughts on our website on the page you got something to say the website operaboxscore.com we've had two phenomenal guests already on the show and now we've got a phenomenal two-minute drill this just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. A classical music station in North Carolina is refusing to broadcast new Met operas over, quote, inappropriate content. In a letter to listeners, WCPE General Manager Deborah Proctor asked for feedback on the decision to not air modern, discordant, and difficult music, and to not broadcast adult themes in harsh language, especially in English. Other objections in the letter include the quote-unquote non-biblical depiction of the nativity in John Adams' El Nino. Philadelphia Orchestra members have rejected the current final offer from management only a week after the first was voted down by the musicians. The American Federation of Musicians has also filed an unfair labor practice charge for management's negotiation tactics. Said Union President Ellen Trainer. Philadelphia Orchestra has failed to respect the bargaining process for months. We believe that management's actions have not only been disrespectful, they've also violated federal labor law. Arts Council Wales announced that a number of artistic organizations, including Mid-Wales Opera, would not be offered multi-annual funding. Quote, obviously, we will be considering our next steps over the coming weeks, said Mid-Wales Chair Gareth Williams. This will, however, be a hammer blow for the young artists who gain invaluable career development opportunities from working with us as well as to audiences in towns and rural communities who have few, if any, opportunities to experience live opera. Hey, way to pull an Arts Council England, Arts Council Wales. 
Cleveland Institute of Music professor Carlos Kalmar has entered a leave of absence two weeks after students staged a sit-in in protest, calling for his resignation after his Title IX investigation was dismissed. CIM said it would not comment further. Conductor Joanna Malwitz has been awarded the Order of Merit of Germany for her contributions to the arts, education, and democracy. Malwitz made her Salzburg Festival debut in 2020, conducting Cosi Fan Tutte, making her just the third female conductor at the festival, which is in Austria, not Germany. Meanwhile, Spanish soprano Maria Bayo was awarded France's Audre des Arts et des Lettres, a distinction that rewards excellence in the art and lettres, as well as contribution to French culture. In trade news, the Berliner Staatsoper has announced that Christian Tielemann will take over as general music director next September. The company has been without a leader since Daniel Berenboim stepped down earlier this year for health reasons, having led the company for three decades. Calgary Opera has appointed a new general director and CEO, Sue Elliott, who begins her tenure in November. Across the pond, Welsh National Opera general director Aidan Lang announced that he will step down at the end of this year. And Eduardo Strasser has been appointed principal conductor and music director of Norlands Operan in Sweden. On the disabled list, Chicago Opera Theatre announced that due to a family emergency, Baritone Nathan Gunn won't perform in the monodrama Soldier Songs by friend of the show David T. Little. David Adam Moore will step up for the performance, which you can see if you listen to this podcast the day it drops. And on this day, October 2nd, birthdays include Gilda Dallarizza, born in 1892 in Verona. She was Toscanini's favorite Violetta, and Puccini wrote the role of Magda and La Rondine for her. In 1933, French conductor Michel Plasson was born in Paris. Also in 1933, French baritone Guy Chauvet was born in Montluçon. First performances include Valentino Fioravanti's La Capricciosa Pentita in 1802, a bop. <laughs> Antonin de Borjac's Tvirje Palice, I want to say, in Prague in 1881. We had to wait over 100 years for the first performance of Bastien with Bastien in Berlin, it's the first proven performance of the Mozart Juvenalia. In 1899, the first performance of Victor Herbert's The Singing Girl in Montreal. 1954 saw the first performance of Gian Francesco Malipiero's Dona Uraca in Bergamo. And on this day, October 2nd, in 2003, it was the first performance of Thea Musgrave's Pontalba in New Orleans. That is your two-minute drill. Just a little bit of Gilda della Rizza from the uh, third act of La Traviata. I just love that letter reading. I think that we should go that far all the time. I think people try to act too much, but I think with opera, it's okay to just be ridiculous like that. I loved it. <laughs> we want to get to this big story about 
the radio station not playing the Met. Can we blast quickly through the Carlos Calman take and then the Tilaman post? Yeah, let's let's blast away here. I mean, Carlos Calman, I don't think there's too much to uh, uh, say here. Obviously, this is something that's happened very recently. Uh, CIM doesn't want to say anything about it. Um, but I know somewhere um, Ashley Hargrave is yelling to the heavens. I told you so. Uh, she, uh, she has been our, um, sort of Oracle at Delphi for all of these, um, uh, abuse stories that keep coming out. And, uh, she, she has only hits, unfortunately, uh, and she never misses, <laughs> um, but she doesn't occasionally <laughs> miss an episode and that is the case tonight. So I just want to thank Ashley Hardgrave. You're great. You're right. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, let us know when the next uh, development in this story will show up, please, so we have something to talk about. As for Christian Thielemann taking over in Berlin, it, it seems to make perfect logical sense. It's very German. I'm not quite sure who else very German. <laughs> would have been on the list, right? Like, he's an acclaimed Wagnerian. He's coming from Dresden. He's 64, right? So he's got many a year ahead of him. It, it's so logical. <laughs> well... They're, uh, they're different generations. I think there's actually two generations that separate them. Uh, they have an age difference of about, about 16 yeah. years. So that's one generation. Um, Gen Thiel- Z, Christian Thielema. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but they say that Thielemann and Berenboim had a rivalry. I don't know if that's still going on, but uh, Thielemann did assist uh, Berenboim back in the day. And I don't know if their conducting styles are mm-hmm. that different, uh, but maybe they're just too similar. I mean, I want somebody who knows like the German conducting world to like, please comment, get your foam finger <laughs> and tell us what the difference is between Thielemann and Berenboim. Uh, I know that Thielemann is like a big Bruckner guy. And I think of Bruckner as being one of the most, I'm going to get uh, canceled for this. I think it's so boring. Bruckner music is just like, please. I mean, That's I what like you're going to get canceled music, but... for? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, th- yeah, I, I, I agree. I I, uh, I don't want to get into my rants about Bruckner, but I do think you're absolutely right about Tielemann. I think this is a, a very similar choice stylistically. I think, you know, in terms of personality, you know, who knows? I think they both kind of have a reputation for being a little bit bullyish as conductors. Right, They're both yeah. very old school, but they come with a lot of like uh, the history that, you know, one that the Europeans really like about these sort of big, like, you know, stalwart conductors that everyone knows and has heard, yeah. you know, it, it's not a very exciting new choice, but it's, you know, it, it's exactly the choice that I expected them to Definitely make. Definitely in know? the, and the alpha male mold, you know, it is, like, yeah, it is, yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah. it is a it is a solid choice. It's the choice that the um, Berliner Staatsoper needs because it's been in this period of flux between COVID, personnel changes, budget problems. So they they want just like a really firm hand on on the tiller. Of course, Tilaban, the uh, general music director at the Deutsche Oper from ninety seven to two thousand four, so he you know has has those sort of administrative chops, knows the repertoire. This seems to be a very uh, straightforward decision, and he speaks German. Not but like he actually that. Uh, speaks German. Not yeah. like that. Gustavo Dudamel trying to make yeah, everything in Spanish. Yeah, huh? exactly. <laughs> so j- before we get into the the other main story of the show, then, so a classical music station in North Carolina refuses to broadcast 
a slate of Met operas because they're <laughs> inappropriate. You sort of have to start with the letter that Deborah Proctor, who's the general manager of the radio station, kind of sent out to a, a large portion of their subscribers, right? It was like 10,000 people, yeah. I think. Yeah. This yeah. is a this is a very wild, wild letter. It actually went went out uh, uh, end of August, um, but kind of you know just circulated among the the listeners for a while, and then really popped up on Twitter in a really big way in the past week. There is a guy that I know. I don't know if he's listening to this, but he works in classical radio, and he sent it to sent it to me. Okay. And so I saw it before it hit like the big news, before it got on Opera Wire, before it got on NPR. I was yeah. like, oh crap, like I can't we got a scoop. We're gonna talk about this on the next episode. And then just in the course of a couple of days, <laughs> it totally exploded. And you know, it made it made NPR, which is you know, for something like this to become like a topic and for all these, you know, reactions to it, um there is a letter. First of all, let's go back to the original post. Yes. So yes, her yes. name is her name is Deborah Proctor, and she um, sent out basically a form to her listeners saying, like, do you like this opera check? Yes or no, basically. Okay. <laughs> and and she, she's saying that, you know, this radio station has been airing the Met for all these years. And we remember the days when, you know, they play Tosca, La Boheme and whatever, you know, and, and now the Met is getting too adventurous. The Met is getting too risky, too much, you know, new works that are discordant. And, um, you know, the subject matter is not appropriate for families. Like families listen to, families listen to the opera, you know. Right. So in her yeah. opinion, both musically discordant and like emotionally and, and content discordant in her opinion. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it seems to be a little bit more content driven. I, I just want to read a couple of quotes because honestly, when, when this story came out, I, I did see this, this um, letter and I genuinely thought it was fake. I genuinely did. It wasn't until NPR came out and they did an interview with her. Like this thing feels like it was written in 1950. Like genuinely, it is it is extraordinary. Most of her objections are have to do with the English language operas, right? Where, you know, they might say say the F word in the score. And like, sure, I get with kids, you know, that's not, you know, something you want them to hear. It's also not something that's going to be broadcast first and foremost, because the Mets will mute that. Uh, and you are also capable as a host radio station to mute those words yourself as well. Um, but uh, it is really it gets really, really in the weeds once you get beyond there. I just want to read the segment uh, laying out what the problems are with El Nino. Uh, she says in this letter that she sent out, El Nino is supposedly about the visit of the Archangel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary. However, in this non-biblical version, when the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, she undergoes pain and mental agony. The music and background vocalization in that scene leaves nothing to the imagination. Other non-biblical sources are used in the libretto. Like, it is such a... 1950s pearl clutching 
uh, desperate, scared tone that that persists through this entire letter. And also, I will also say, uh, just so like it doesn't go unsaid, a lot of these works have LGBT themes in them, yeah. and the letter is very careful not to say that explicitly, but it heavily heavily implies it in my opinion yeah just to avoid any so, lawsuits here so these are the operas that she's canceling florence florence and amazonas in which, spanish which actually i want to say like that one's wild too sorry to interrupt you oliver but i mm -hmm. i want to say this most of these are english language operas that are like oh no a child might hear something inappropriate uh florence and the amazons is in spanish not in english uh, and I want to read, sorry, Oliver, I really have Go to read it. this. This is so fun to me. Uh, Florence and the Amazons is simply outside the bounds of our musical format guidelines. A recent employee who is very liberal in the wide-spanning view of what constitutes the limits of material acceptable for broadcast on this station said this opera was basically okay. Having heard it, I found that the basically okay would be most basically not okay for far too many listeners. <laughs> well, I'm glad that that uh, recent employee <laughs> is such an expert. That, that on recent what... liberal employee yeah, yeah. is so funny. Okay, so that one is canceled. Uh, Dead, Dead Man Walking is canceled. We know all about Dead Men Walking from the movie, and it's been one of the most popular American operas in right. recent it, years. It, it features a yeah. uh, execution on stage. I'm sure there's yes. some some profanity. Uh, yeah. Crisis I don't think of faith. It's, it's, about, it's really about the first scene, which is uh, the, the rape. The rape, you know? right, yeah. yeah. Right, yes. Uh, Life and Times of Malcolm X. Oh, that's uh, like way too political. You can't, addresses yeah. addresses yeah. adult themes and contains offensive language. Great. Um, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. Adult themes, um, and basically, it Child doesn't abuse. say it, but yeah. but gay. No, no, it's right. it doesn't say it, it anywhere, it, but gay. but gay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We already talked about El Nino, and then the hours, uh, which is complaining about uh, its cancellations, complaining about suicide and suicidal ideation, um, and you know, there's so many suicides in opera. I mean, she talked about Tosca at the beginning of her letter, and like Tosca is what an attempted rape. Uh, she kills her her rapist. Uh, mm -hmm. And then she watches her lover uh, die of a political execution, you know, and exactly. then she commits suicide. Well, it like, is, <laughs> and so let's look at the other broadcasts. Of course, that would include Carmen, who is uh, about a soldier in, in sexual thrall to a wo Roma woman who uh, stabs them to death. Turned out about a, a bloodthirsty princess. Um, and the opera starts with the beheading, Madame Butterfly, which is... Uh, about a Navy officer impregnating a 15-year-old girl. And Tannhäuser, enough said. It, it is it is truly, it, it is truly, when I, when I read this, I'm like, this is everything wrong with classical music, right? This, this is the caricature of what popular media thinks classical music listeners are. Uh, and, and seeing it in real life was genuinely, I, I've been too, too much in this, you know, little um you know uh the space of of all of us you know mostly on the right side of history i hope kind of you're <laughs> in your you're in your fans, new chicago you know? bubble you're away from your i, I am yeah. and, and it was just so wild to see it all written down in the year of our lord 2023 i want to point out a quote from the npr interview that they did with uh proctor 
Um, and apparently at one point during the interview with NPR, she broke down in tears and said, I have a moral decision to make here. What if one child hears this? When I stand before Jesus Christ on Judgment Day, what am I going to say? Look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mock a woman about her, her faiths or belief, but I will. <laughs> but but I will I will mock I will mock an individual by assuming that lots of people listen to your radio station. Listen, if you come across a child today, I guarantee you, ma'am, they are not listening <laughs> to the FM dial. Okay, so it's highly, highly unlikely uh, that a child is scanning <laughs> through to try and find something to listen to, and it, it most certainly won't be the Met broadcast. That's actually a great. I didn't even think about that. Like what? What child has a radio? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's completely true. Like, like there is no child. E- even when I was a kid, I, I wasn't listening to the radio unless my parents turned it on, you know. And like, you know, by very definition, if I was in the room, it was something they approved of, you know. And I, I think that anyone would do this. You know, anyone who would just like, you know turn on something like that would be like oh this is this is the the one with the gay people in it if they're homophobic they turn it off you know you don't have to worry about and also i will say they give little synopses at the beginning of all of these operas speaking as you know a former child myself who listened to the met broadcasts like even if you don't speak the language, you have it spelled out for you in english before the show begins exactly look you know, the met has this down to a fine art form, a well-oiled machine. It is going to do content warnings. It is going to give guidance. It is not just going to throw content out onto the air like this. And there are still FCC regulations. They're not going to broadcast. Yes, of course not. Of course not. No, of course not. Now, Now, so here's the thing, right? On this show, we don't criticize people. We criticize their choices. We criticize their behavior. And to Ashley's point, she says, what bums me out the most is that Deborah Proctor is actually a radio pioneer badass. She got her FCC radio license before her driver's license. She founded the station as a woman in the early 70s, and she built the station's transmitter by hand. WCPE is one of the first radio stations to broadcast over the internet. As she goes on, she says, look, sorry, Deb, you're absolutely on the wrong side of progress here. Stop weaponizing free public art in the already nauseating culture wars well that's yeah. that's a great way to to wrap that up uh, we will add a rebuttal uh to our show notes that you can read from celeste headley who uh is related to william grant still i'm not sure if yes he, i believe yeah. so oh cool um so she's a grand granddaughter of composer william grant still and it's an excellent rebuttal but i think we've we basically covered this it is embarrassing and like weston i'm sorry that you are finally um it feels like I'm back in Alabama again. Un- you know? Understanding what it's like uh, <laughs> to be in a minority. But um, I tell you, I, at my other job, I see communications like this all the time. And Do I have you to really? Deal with these people. Yeah, I have to oh, deal with yeah. these people all the but time. You, you, yeah. But usually you don't hear it in the, quite this explicit terms from the person in charge of the station. <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let's wrap it up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Time for good call, bad call to wrap up the show this week, starting with Oliver Camacho. I forgot to thank uh, Lyric Opera's PR team for putting me in touch with Lizette Oropesa. There will be a full interview with her on my other platform. You know what that is. It's a radio station, not in North Carolina. Uh, and <laughs> since we're talking about Lyric Opera Chicago, I have to say congrats to the cast 
and crew of Flying Dutchman. I heard some not so uh, favorable reviews of this, so I was kind mm-hmm. of like, all right, whatever, I'm going to suffer through this. But I really enjoyed it. It was great. Um, yeah, I thought that the set design, um, I forget who designed it, but it's a Christopher Alden production. Uh, but it's its like a, um, a ship and it's on stilts and the stilts are not evenly length. So there's this giant rake from stage uh, right. right to stage left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I don't know how those people <laughs> deal with that rake. Yeah. I mean, it's literally, I don't know, maybe it's like 30 degrees or 25 degrees, like to be doing that for two and a half hours that's gotta be tough on the ankles and i mean the <laughs> cast was categorically good but man tamara wilson f me like she did not hold back mm. and she sounded so good throughout the entire show and when it was time for those big notes she did not disappoint man nice. she set them up like she knows exactly yeah. how long she yeah. needs to like take a breath and then deliver and they yep. were there and they so like great. they nailed you to the back of your chair they were awesome so great weston williams i have a late good call and you know sometimes you know I, I know we have a lot of listeners you know life gets in the way you might miss an episode or two and then we'll reference something you know a few months later and you're like oh i don't remember if i actually heard that episode well don't feel too bad about it because i just finally got to the matthew O'Coin episode we did like what three years ago now uh, i was walking through i was walking through a bookstore and i happened upon a coin's book um, opera, I think it's called The Impossible Art about opera, and I realized I hadn't listened to Eurydice, and then I was like, oh yeah, I hadn't listened to the, the show since I was in it. Um, and I, I <laughs> had like a little O'Coin day where I re-listened to the episode. Lovely. I uh, listened to Eurydice, I started reading the book, and it was real. all of it was really good. I mean, I mean like obviously the best part was our podcast, but, every, but Matthew O'Coin is just so talented and well worth you know, checking out again if you've let him slip to the back of your mind as I had. That's my good late call for this episode. Ashley's got a good call saying congratulations to local Chicago storefront company Third Eye Theater Ensemble on a solid storytelling in their final production ever of Giancarlo Minotti's The Console. Special shout outs to Mary Govertson as Magda, Melissa Arning as the secretary, Jennifer Barrett as the mother, and Lee Fondeng pulling double duty as the secret police officer and Mr. Kaufner. Bad call for me to wrap things up. So the Chicago Bears went 0-4 on Sunday, losing to the Broncos in the last closing moments of the fourth quarter. Now they play on a short week with their next game just five days later on Thursday night this week at Washington, who are 2-2. It is very, very possible that this Bears team could be 0-8 halfway through the season yikes that's it for this week's edition of america's talk radio show about opera make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts get your voice heard and find links to stuff we've talked about at our website operaboxscore.com it is beautiful looking right now and hey the website is also where you can put your money where our mouths are super easy just give back to the obs using paypal on the support the team page your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Your audio editor is Weston Williams. For our guests, John Brancy and Lisette Oropesa, 
I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera out of the earshot of children. <laughs> We're back with an all-new show next week when we plan to talk to bass baritone Luca Pisaroni and young Heldon tenor Robert Watson. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more facht up baritones. Join us. <laughs>